think it was eight years ago, I graduated theological college. Um, I think there was, might have been 60 of us uh, who finished our year together, wide-eyed, heading off into the world, armed with the gospel of Jesus, a love for Christ in our hearts, and secretly believing, I think, that we'd had the answers that the church had forgotten. And it didn't take long for reality to set in. And we had all the issues you might expect, boss issues, uh, health, depression, but also some really sad things. Uh, there was sin. Good ministry spoiled, marriages dissolved, gifted leaders disqualified for ministry. I mean, we've heard about some of those uh, this week. But it was dr really driven home for me. About two years ago, in the space of six months in Melbourne, I lost six evangelical, we lost six evangelical ministers. Good friends, brothers, reformed guys uh, from the ministry. Now, one of them died of leukemia, which was just a terrible tragedy that no one could have foreseen. But all the others, it was something else. One of them had a fight with an elder, and the church shut down. Two of, two of them had marriages that broke down, and both those guys are out of ministry. One brother of mine went full narcissist and just destroyed people, one too many, and the church self-destructed. We had a number of them who came, along, who came to us, and they, they were just a mess. And then particularly painfully, a dear brother who was part of our launch team, who studied with me at Moore College, who, who worked for a parachurch uh, organisation, very good friends with uh, FIC, confessed to long-standing sin in his life. He lost his job and his ministry and we had to stand him down. And it was brutal. And it's not just me, is it? You've got your own stories. Now, if you know Melbourne, you, you will know that we don't have five ministries to spare. I mean, I don't know if you've met us. We're already scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> but don't those experiences just sober you? They force you to reflect on yourself. And, and so I, I've spent the last couple of years doing that. Doing that. I reckon I'm a pretty, pretty typical pastor. I want to tell you about my bookcase I've got one case full of commentaries and the other case is full of kind of practical stuff. I have half a shelf on leadership. I've got a whole shelf on preaching. I've got another half a shelf on church and how to do church. I've got all the church books. Uh, Centre church, total church, simple church, purpose-driven church. I've got them all. Another half, uh, half a shelf on practical ministry, small groups, one-to-ones, meetings. Can you guess how many books I've got on cultivating spiritual holiness? Godliness, walking with the Lord. Zero. I do have the Bible, that's true. In fact, I've got about six Bibles. <laughs> but when I read the pastoral epistles, and we've read some this week, I mean, it's all about character, isn't it? We've seen that in Titus. And when you consider the damage done to ministries and churches and people by leaders who fail to follow Christ, I just began wondering whether something was missing in my, I don't know, my education. 18 months into our church plant, uh, we had twin boys. A traumatic pregnancy and a traumatic entry into the world. And I did not cope. I ended up spending some time with a, a Christian psychologist, which was wonderful. And we spent a lot of time thinking about role. What is your role? Uh, we're not big on personal call language in the FIEC. But I want to suggest to you that you need an answer to the question... What does God expect from me today? You need an answer because you better believe everyone else has got a view on what you should be doing. 
And having an answer to that question will protect you from that lingering feeling that you're a failure, that most of us walk around with most of the time. And for me, as I, as I wrestled with this question, there was one particular verse uh, from 1 Timothy that I landed on. It became uh, the, the foundation for my research thesis that I did as part of my master's. And I'd like to share some of that with you this evening. My aim is however else you answer this question, what does God expect from me today, that I want you to add to it. He wants you to set an example of Christian living worthy of imitation for those you lead. This is the verse I, uh, I landed on. You'll know it. 1 Timothy 4.12 Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, there are a number of passages in the New Testament about imitating one's leaders, aren't there? Uh, in, in the book of Hebrews, a shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And in Peter, remembering your, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith, imitation. But particularly, you find this idea in Paul. Now, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, imitation of various individuals was a key means of ethical instruction and moral formation. It, it's interesting to kind of map how that idea was understood in, in, in Jesus' day. And I was going to do that for you, but my community pastor, Edwin Chow, thought that would be boring. So we're not doing that. All that is to say... In the world of the first century, if you were a disciple of someone, like of Jesus Christ, it would almost go without saying that you would follow them around, observe their life and imitate it. And this becomes a key method in Paul's ministry. This call to imitation, to setting an example for others to follow. Most famously, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And in the end, all instructions, all calls to imitate our leaders are ultimately calls to imitate Jesus. And I just want you to think for, to yourself, just think about the way that Paul uses himself, the way that he describes his ministry, how he reminds his recipients what happened to his life, his experiences. Right? He'll remind Timothy of his sufferings for the gospel and then he'll invite him to, to join him. He'll remind Timothy of the message that was entrusted to him, that he proclaimed and he believed, and then invite him to entrust it to others who will entrust it to others. He'll remind Timothy that he's fought the fight and ran the race. And what does he instruct Timothy to do? Fight the good fight of the faith. Run the race. An athlete, a soldier, you could argue that any time Paul describes his ministry, particularly in the pastorals, it is a cause for imitation. Now, you might have already figured that out as a leader. Right? Every parent has that, that experience of their child saying something incredibly rude and obnoxious and you kind of just realise, that's what I say because that's exactly how I say it. <laughs> Friends, if you're a Christian leader, be it a Sunday school small group or lead pastor, your people are watching. And they're going to copy what you do, for better or worse, the decisions that you make. How you talk to your spouse where you send your kids to school, how you drive, what you write on Facebook. Your people are watching and they're going to imitate. So let's come back to our passage. 
1 Timothy 4.12. I've spent the better part of the last two years just sort of researching this passage and I found it incredibly rewarding. Tracking each of these elements through, trying to figure out why Paul chose these five things and how they interact with each other and the implications then for Christian leadership. And I want to share a little bit about that and then give you a few suggestions for how I've tried to put this into practice. So that's, that's kind of where we're going. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.12, we don't actually know how old Timothy is, uh, but anything under the age of 40 would have been considered young, which is a wonderful thing. And perhaps we don't realise what a struggle it would have been for the church to have a young leader. Now, if you're in a Chinese church, you'll already get it because you're probably living out uh, this tension right now. But for the rest of us, I don't know if we quite understand how difficult it would have been to have a young elder. It's almost self-contradictory, as Philip's shown us. But in response to this struggle that people are having to Timothy's age, he's called to set a worthy example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Now I take it that speech and conduct are the two realms of Christian ministry. Right? That's the job, isn't it? Speech and conduct. Speech. Logos. When I first read that, I assumed it was kind of talking about Timothy in his general chit-chat with people. But whenever Paul uses the word logos, particularly in the pastorals, he uses it narrowly. It always refers to the laying down of the word of God, to the proclaiming of the truth, the gospel, revelation. Timothy is told to avoid fruitless discussion, 1 Timothy 1.6, and avoid irreverent and empty speech, 6.20. But the logos is the laying down of the truth. Again, it's worth tracking this word down and thinking about all the different uses. Again, I was informed that that would be boring, but I've just got a few on the screen for you to just reflect on yourself if you can see it. Great statements of the gospel, preaching ministry, truths that are to be accepted in contrast to the false teachers who have their own logos. When Timothy is instructed to set the believers an example in speech, it is the proclamation of the truth, the laying down of sound doctrine, which shouldn't be a surprise because it was a great threat to the church in Ephesus and I take it to Australia. Uh, the next word, conduct, a way of life, an astrophare, uh, the only use of the word in the epistle, but the concept is all over the place. In fact, it's almost hard to overstate how important this is. We've seen it in Titus. A godly conduct is critical in 1 Timothy. I'm going to labour this point just a little bit. By practising godly conduct, the believers can please God. Women are saved through childbearing. Deacons acquire for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith. The church might take hold of the promise for the present life and the life to come. The rich may store up for themselves a good foundation for the coming age. And all believers might avoid the fate of those who have departed from the faith. And that is just scratching the surface. Timothy is instructed to embody this righteous living in himself and in turn promote it in the church. And I could have given you 50 examples of where that happens just in this one epistle. But I'll just leave five up on the screen for you to just sort of sink in. Because I want you to feel it. I don't think I really realise the relationship between these two things, speech and conduct. It is incredibly significant in the mind of the apostle. They are two sides of the one coin. And you just reflect on your own how often Paul calls 
attention to his own conduct and appeals to it as justification for his message. I mean, that's the whole of 2 Corinthians, isn't it? That's the whole of 2 Corinthians. And he'll do it all the way through the, the, the pastorals. His argument, Timothy, you know me. You know what happened to me. You know those who taught you the gospel. So hold fast to the message. And he flips it too. Those false teachers, they will in the end be exposed by their conduct. And then, of course, there's a great pastoral injunction from 1 Timothy 4. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing so you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Did you notice? It is speech and conduct. And there's nothing less than salvation at stake. Uh, so I've been thinking about this topic. I've started to pay attention to um, some of the job descriptions that our, our tribe, our Reformed Evangelical tribe, uh, puts out. And I don't want to criticise anyone's job description because I know a lot of uh, effort goes into formulating those. But I have noticed that when it comes to character, at best it gets lip service. And at worst, it's just ignored completely. But just feel again Paul's job description of an overseer. And you know, the, you know these verses. An overseer therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household completely and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Couldn't you argue that Paul pays lip service to competency? That he pays lip service to skills and giftedness? The weight's on character. Now I suspect I'm preaching the converted. But I also know it's from us. It's our brothers and sisters and peers who disqualify themselves from ministry. And I also suspect the reason I don't have any books on holiness is deep down I don't think it matters. I don't think it's that important and I definitely don't believe it's strategic. And I think we will pay the price if we assume character. If we're to set the believers an example in the realms of speech and conduct, then that speech and conduct must be shaped by the qualities of love, faith and purity. And these qualities all feature heavily through 1 Timothy. And let me commend it to you. It is a really worthwhile thing to just look at the way love comes up again and again and again. Or faith or purity. But let me just make a few little brief comments. Faith, Timothy's hold is to hold to the mystery of the faith, 3.9. Pursue faith, 6.11. Fight the good fight of the faith, 6.12. As Paul did, who himself, of course, fought the good fight. Ran the race, kept the faith. And Timothy's to not follow, follow the example of those who shipwreck their faith, 1.19. Depart from the faith, 4.1. Wander away from the faith, 6.10. You notice all the very physical verbs used to talk about faith. Holding, pursuing, fighting, shipwreck, depart, wander away. He's to contend for it in his own life and in the life of his church. Love. Paul describes as the goal of our instruction in 1 verse 5. What an interesting way to think about your ministry. He says the goal of our instruction is love. Or how about purity? 
The only other use of this particular word in the New Testament is in chapter 5 when Paul says, treat younger women as sisters with all purity. We know from extra biblical literature, the words connected to sexual purity, I take it it's not that different from being the husband of but one wife. Now it's hard to imagine how a Christian leader could fail sexually, isn't it? Imagine if that was a true statement. Imagine if it really was hard to imagine. You sat there and thought, yeah, I can't imagine that. But it is all too common. I hope it's becoming clear that setting an example of Christian living worthy of imitation is your job if you're a leader. Whatever else God is calling you to do, this is a part of it. The public life of a gospel preacher is inseparable from their message. It's what God has called us to and we'd serve our churches and we'd serve our God well by doing it. And what if we as FIC churches put in all the right pipelines, engines and strategies, but God in his wisdom decided to restrict the growth of our churches because it was just too dangerous? Because our lives didn't match our message. Well, let me give you a few suggestions for how I've tried to live out this exemplary Christian living in my own ministry. How I've tried to set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Uh, this is pretty random. You might come up with better ideas from me, but there's a couple of things I've done that have worked. Uh, number one, change your thinking. This makes a huge difference. Consider public conduct as part of the job, as part of your calling. It's who you are and what you do. Ask yourself, is this the example I want to set for others? Would I be happy if others spoke this way, posted these things, or, or did this? And number two, in your preaching, share yourself, right? Your insecurities and your struggles and your doubts. People resonate far stronger with a real Christian on the real Christian journey than some sort of hero that you've fabricated. They get to see you on the journey they're on and and that's, that's both very interesting preaching and very effective, I think. And there is a danger for big churches that all people know of you is your public persona that you've carefully crafted. In fact, no one might know the real you, what your life is like. I think that's a real danger. Uh, Number three, hospitality. I think think people need to be part of your life. If you're to set an example for them, they need to be around your home and your family. You'll remember that hospitality is a requirement of an overseer. And it's a key way you can model love. Open up your home as part of your ministry, like Paul, who shared not only the gospel, but his life. Uh, Number four, recognize the power of your words. Consciously use them and model them to others, particularly in prayer. Ask yourself, how do you want others to pray? Because they will pray like you. I am not a words of affirmation guy, but I'm trying to become one because I've realized the impact that my words have on my people. Pastors, I wonder if you've ever told your congregation that you love them. A lot of people have never had someone tell them that they love them. It is both awkward and profound. It's a good tip for marriage too. I um, I remember explaining to my wife that I I told her I loved her on our wedding day and I shouldn't need to repeat it over and over again. That was wrong. And now I say it every day. Friends, model love to your people in your speech and your conduct. They will put up with a lot of harebrained schemes and half-baked sermons if they know you love them. Uh, Number five, if you keep anyone accountable for anything, make sure they keep you accountable too. 
So most of the most of the guys I met up with, I met up with a few young young fellows from church, all of whom I'm hoping will be leaders. And each week we've agreed that I will ask them, "Have you looked at porn since we last caught up?" They know it's coming. I know it's coming. And uh, sometimes they say no, and sometimes they say yes, and we, we, we deal with it. I make them ask me the same question. Uh, and, and, and it's been really helpful because it creates this feel that you're in this together. So let me commend that to you, whether it's porn or anything. I, uh, I was doing marriage prep with one couple, and I met with a groom, and, I, and I, you know, I, I raised the issue of pornography and how you've got to keep it out of your marriage. It's, it's terrible. And he said to me, oh, I haven't looked at porn for like two weeks. And I thought, I think we could put the bar a bit higher uh, here. A part of that spiritual accountability, do you know it took me four years of ministry to work out that finding someone who could ask me, how's your walk with God going, how's your marriage, was a good idea. Uh, It's very helpful. Find someone who can keep you accountable, a mentor, an older Christian, not part of your church, and then share that you're doing that with your people. It's a great way to model faith. Uh, number six is something we do when it comes to giving at church. All, all our giving's done electronically. I know not everyone likes that, but, but that's how we do it. Everyone's giving is anonymous, uh, except for mine. Everyone gets a copy of my giving. Uh, initially, that felt really awkward. It's actually been really positive. Uh, it means I can model generosity. It's clear that I'm a part of the church. Most people don't realize the pastor actually gives. And I think it's helped us be more generous. So it's good for the budget. But it also models, I think, faith and love for the church. Uh, number seven, those of us who are men, we've got to be really serious about how we treat women. We need to take the injunction to treat younger women as sisters in all purity, as Philip has urged us to do, really seriously. Uh, the way we speak about women, how they feel in our presence. These days, people are looking to us to figure out marriage and gender and gentleness and leadership. But this is probably where... Many of us are in danger of becoming unstuck, particularly because I've suggested you tell your church that you love them. Just check yourself over and over again. And number eight, I've realized how, how you deal with elements of the Christian faith publicly, your people will deal with privately. So I want to reflect on that experience I told you about, this brother who was part of our launch team, part of our leadership team. Uh, who confessed to sin in his life at great cost. I asked him if it was okay if I shared this, and he was really keen. Uh, He confessed to sin in his life at great cost. He knew it would cost him his job, his ministry. He'd put his wife through a tremendous amount of shame and his kids. It was the first time I I think I've been utterly bewildered. I'm very grateful for people in this room who got that awkward phone call from me asking, what do I do? Uh, I thought we could probably just deal with it privately. But because so many of his financial supporters uh, were in the room and knew he'd been fired but didn't get any details, there were certain assurances that had to be given about the safety of people. You can imagine what they are. He was incredibly brave. He said he heard God tell him that he had to repent. Uh, We had to address it publicly. It was painful if you've gone through that experience. But it was a profound gospel moment of repentance and forgiveness and restoration. And I learned an incredible amount from the experience. I learned that there's hope for those trapped in secrecy, even ministry leaders. And there probably are a couple of you here tonight 
who feel like owning up to the secret sins of your life are just not an option because of the leadership responsibility you bear. Can I suggest that it's actually a wonderful option? This is what my friend said to me after, after it, it all happened. He said, a burden's been lifted after so many years. I understand the gospel for the first time. And friends, I learned that when sin comes to light, no one loses. No marriage is worse off when sin is exposed. And no ministry is worse off when sin is exposed. Because sin thrives in the darkness but dies in the light. And that is what happened. And I also realized that when people model repentance... I had a whole bunch of others' hands who, who went up. I was a bit shocked. I had a whole bunch of conversation that started with, Tim, I need to tell you something. Because people had seen the gospel in action. How you communicate things publicly, things in your community, sin, faith, faith disappointment, repentance, anger, evangelism, your friends will respond privately. Brothers and sisters, FIC, I think, are known for many, th- many things. Our zeal for evangelism, church planting, strategy, effectiveness, theological rigour. Let's aim for speech and conduct and faith and love and purity. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if when someone asks, where are the churches keen on faith, love and purity, people pointed at FIC and said, there they are over there. Imitate Christ that we might be worthy of imitation. Can I, can I, can I pray for us? Is that a good way to finish? And, uh, and then we will. Let's, how about we pray? Lord, May we be known for our speech and conduct, shaped by our faith and love and purity. May we be those who set a a worthy example of Christian living that others can follow. Even as we ourselves imitate Christ, Father, forgive us for our failures. Change us that we might lead others towards Jesus and not away from him. Lord, we consider those who set examples for us We thank you for them. Father, protect us from sin and the devil. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.